0: Good morning. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. My name is Tom Dick. I'm the pastor of junior high students here, and I thought before I started this morning, I'd give you a little picture into my world of how a junior high pastor feels before he preaches. The word is paranoid. Um, About two weeks before I, I preach, I typically start having bad dreams. They're not nightmares, but they're bad enough that Pastor Ray visits me in them. And then... (laughs) <laughs> so you, you kind of get paranoid that you're going to sleep past your alarm the day you're preaching or that something bad is going to happen like that. And this morning, I was worried about that, so I decided I would uh, take my scooter in. I'd wake up early and kick my scooter in. And then as I was driving, I realized, man, if I crashed this morning, how embarrassing would that be, you know? Where is the preacher? Oh, he's in the hospital. He crashed his scooter, like last year, because <laughs> I did last year. And then I thought, well, what would be worse, though, is if a bug hit me and I got this big bug stain on my leg. And then I thought, you know what? If I can hit a bug so hard that it stains me on my scooter, I will wear that as a badge of honor. (laughs) We don't exactly go fast on them, you know what I mean? And so, um, and by the way, if you're a Harley driver, we are insecure enough as it is, us on scooters, you don't need to throttle up as you go past, that's just fine, (laughs) okay? So just remember that, okay? Share the road. Okay, I'm glad you're laughing now because you might not the rest of the message. Okay, <laughs> today I'm going to be picking up on a message series that Pastor Chris Dirksen had us in a few months ago on, is the Bible really God's Word? Now when he was doing it, he did it primarily on the New Testament, and uh, today I'm going to be focusing on the Old Testament and particularly su- uh, two objections and challenges that skeptics give us in, re, uh, in, in accepting its reliable reliability and inspiration. Now, this is a supremely interesting topic to me. In fact, I absolutely love it. I've been doing a lot of reading on it this year, uh, not knowing I would even preach today. Uh, But I have to admit that my fascination doesn't always translate into fascination for everyone else. So today you will experience my wife's world. But as long as you can tolerate a bit of history lessons this morning, we're going to have a good time and you're going to leave here being encouraged. I know that. Now, defending the Old Testament would be considerably more difficult... Um, if Jesus hadn't seen it and spoken of it as though it reliable. Because we find that if we can trust the words of Jesus in the New Testament, and he speaks um, about the Old Testament favorably, as though it's reliable, then we can probably trust the Old Testament. But that isn't to say that a text as ancient as the Old Testament doesn't raise significant and challenging questions for us, questions to which I believe there are really good answers. And so today, uh, I just want to let you know that I'm picking up on a theme that Chris started in that this message series really isn't for skeptics. It's more for Christians who need confidence in their faith. You're not going to leave here with a bunch of arguments that are going to win the debate over coffee this week. And as always, there's nowhere near enough time to cover the whole Old Testament, but I'm going to try to do the topic justice, and I'm going to focus on three areas— What exactly is the Old Testament? How did we get it and how is it preserved? What are two major challenges to the reliability of the Old Testament? And then I'm going to try and try really hard to draw out a practical application. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this morning. I want to thank you that you have prepared the groundwork of our hearts. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand. I pray, God, that you would help us to grow in love with you and your word more and more. And Father, I pray that you would silence the lies of the enemy That would seek to confuse and distract us from your word this morning. I pray, God, that we would be able to be completely in tune with what your Holy Spirit is trying to accomplish. Amen. So, what is the Old Testament? And when I ask the question, I don't mean like it's 39 books of the Old Testament or 39 books and it's the first part of the Christian Bible. It's written by various authors. I mean, like if you were to come up against a a non-Christian friend and they said, Well, what is exactly the Old Testament? How would you describe it to them? And I've chosen two words that I'd like you to keep in mind for this entire morning. And they are revelation and restoration. Revelation and restoration. The Old Testament is God's self-revelation to an ancient people. So that is God's self-revelation to an ancient people. Another way to say this is that the Old Testament is interested in theology. The Old Testament is interested in teaching us about God. It is not, for example, a scientific textbook. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean, that isn't to say that the Bible doesn't contain any scientific information, but that's not its primary focus. The primary focus of the Bible, and especially the Old Testament, is God. Now, I say this because if you take one thing away this morning, what I want you to remember is that the Bible is not a modern book, and it's certainly not a postmodern book. It is the ancient self-revelation of Yahweh to his ancient followers, What this means is that while the Bible, and the Old Testament specifically, is supremely relevant, it's supremely relevant, it is still an ancient book containing ancient figures of speech and ancient culturally specific context. And we aren't just talking about a book that was written to an ancient people here. The Old Testament is the record of self-revelation of Yahweh to a primeval culture, telling us the story of the earliest people who walked the earth and how God related to them. That revelation took place in a way that they understood And keep in mind that the first stories, they happened long before writing was even invented. So by the time those first stories were written, they were written down in a way that made sense to the author. You know, it's kind of like if Adam and Eve were to write down their testimony, they may have included different elements for their children than Moses did when he wrote their story on their behalf, because he was writing their story to his followers, And so there is a context. In fact, there's layers and layers of context, because even today, I'm preaching a message that has the context of modern listeners, and so I'm picking up on the things that I think are important. So there's layers and layers and layers of context to unpack. And not only that, and this is very important, the self-revelation of God is not complete. It's not a complete revelation. By definition, it can't. How could an infinite God write down all there is to know about him, all there is to reveal? But what the Bible does contain is precisely what God wanted to reveal about himself. And that's very important because that means much to the chagrin of the skeptic that there are mysteries and questions about, uh, about God which have been mined for thousands of years and will be, continue to be unpacked into eternity. And you know what? Whining about all the little things we don't understand won't change a blessed thing. It certainly didn't for Job, and he was even righteous, unlike many skeptics I know. Number two. By the way, can I say something about skeptics? Skeptics, I have very little patience for, and I'm going to tell you why. Because I find that skeptics are not truth seekers. People who seek after truth, that's one thing. I'm a truth seeker. I ask lots of questions. I'm annoying. But skeptics... They just question everything for the sake of questioning it, and it's usually negative. And, it's, and they don't ever arrive at truth. They're agnostic about truth. And do you know what that means to me? That means that they question the glory that I believe that God deserves. And you know what? When you, when you steal glory from my best friend, I take it personally. So I tend to have kind of a lower view of skeptics and a very high view of truth seekers and Christians who love to ask questions. So that's the self-revelation of God. Also, the Bible outlines God's plan of restoration for fallen mankind back into a relationship with himself. Another purpose of the Bible is to show us that there is a big story that is unfolding for the way for people to have a right relationship with God, Yahweh. It starts with the ancient rebellion of Eden. It anticipates the Messiah of the Gospels, and it marches us towards a future new Eden. This is important because it means that when we encounter small confusing elements over the details of Scripture, if we remember that there's a big story in mind, it's much easier to understand that these elements, these small confusing elements, are actually just a small step towards ultimate redemption. They weren't an end in themselves. They were a means to an end. For example, take sacrifices. Now, when we read about sacrifices, we just take it for granted. But we, you know, we tell the story of Noah's Ark. We build an ark and put it in our nurseries as if there weren't dead bodies floating all around it. You know, We talk about sacrifices as if they're just this thing that happened. No, sacrifices were bloody ordeals. They would offend us if we saw that. The closest thing I've seen to, uh, to a sacrifice is um, I've seen some videos of Hindu rituals where they still offer sacrifices, and it's, it kind of offenses your, uh, or offends your modern-day sensibilities. But But the sacrifices were obviously extremely important to the uh, ancient people. They understood it. It made sense within their context, and it was a means to an end. The sacrifices of the temple were pointing towards our ultimate restoration in the cross. So the principle of sacrifice is still there in the cross, but the practice of temple sacrifice foreshadowing the restoration of Jesus Christ, that's no longer needed. The same goes for the confusing elements of the holy wars and the conquest of Canaan, many of the laws that hold us back, the rituals such as discerning God's will through some strange methods such as consulting an ephod. Ephods, they're weird. I don't use an ephod anymore. Do you know what an ephod is? I yeah, me neither, not really. It's some sort of magical sort of device that they could talk to. Prophets would talk to it, and it would actually give them the will of God through it. So we don't use that anymore, but these were all small steps towards an end in the story of man's restoration to God. So remember, there is a big picture to keep in mind, particularly when the skeptics call into question the entire book based on one confusing element— Every event, ritual, rule, story of the Old Testament points in the direction of our ultimate restoration. So self-revelation of God, it's precisely what he wanted us to know, and it's also the plan of restoration, it sets the stage for the cross. But how did we get these Old Testament books, the accounts of self-revelation and restoration? And here we begin our history lesson. And if you don't like history, it's too bad, we're going to have a history lesson this morning. And we're going to begin with the history of writing. Although writing was invented around uh, 4000 BC, it was very cumbersome, relying on pictographs and pictures representing whole words. Later on, it was broken down into pictures representing syllables, but it was an extremely inefficient way of storytelling. And right here, you should have a picture in your mind of the pyramids and the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, and those sorts of things. They were pictures of a bird, and hey, guess what that picture means? It means bird, you know? And they had to have a picture for every single word, and it was very long, and and they were hard to interpret, especially when the pictures became syllables, and you didn't know the ancient language, so they only even began to be unpackaged, really, and understood about 150 years ago. But that wasn't even alphabets. Alphabets were invented and refined as societies settled and became more politically stable, The first of which was called Cuneiform, and it came out of Mesopotamia. Now, Mesopotamia is the area of the world that the Bible starts in. Uh, It's sort of modern-day Iraq, Iran, and, you know, Jordan and those areas. And uh, it is the place that the Garden of Eden was. The Garden of Eden was located between the Tigris and the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. That's where it was. And cuneiform was invented in this area of the world, and it was made, I have a picture here to show you, it was made by pressing uh, reeds into soft clay that was left out in the sun or was fired in a kiln and it was hardened. And these things are very well preserved. They're all over the place. You can find them in the Middle East as you do archaeological digs. But these systems of writing, they were developed during the time of the biblical patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So about Genesis 12 to Exodus, now think about that. At the stories, at the time of the stories that you read in your Bible, writing has not even been invented yet. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were nomadic people. They probably were completely illiterate. That's an interesting thing to think about, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes, Charles. <laughs> and because they were illiterate and couldn't write these things down, the first stories were passed on orally from generation to generation. In fact, I did a word search this week uh, because I was curious about when people started reading and writing in the Bible, and the first time the word read appears is with Joseph, which makes sense because Joseph was taken, uh, sold into slavery by his idiot older brothers, and then he was taken into Egypt, and uh, there he was trained eventually in the palace of the Pharaoh and became the second in command of all Egypt. So he would have been able to read and write. That was very important to keep records and his job. But it was Moses, who was also born into Egypt, who was also trained as a prince, who is largely credited with writing the earliest books of the Bible, and he would have done it in a form of Hebrew that's called Proto-Hebraic. It looks like Hebrew, but it's a little bit looser, and it used no vowels and no spaces, so it can be quite difficult to read. However, at this time, the vast majority of Israelites would have been illiterate, and this is very important to understand— Most of the Israelites were illiterate, which is why there's a huge emphasis in Deuteronomy and and later books of the Bible to recite the book of the law. That's why in Deuteronomy 6, they say, recite these books of the law, you know, to your children while you're walking, while you're standing, while you're sleeping, before bed, when you get up, when you walk through the door, like it's basically being a super annoying parent, right? And just recite them all the time to your kids so that they get this into their head. It's very important. And they did a lot of memorization. Just because stories were passed down orally, memorized stories, doesn't mean that they were unreliable. We, we, have, we are really bad at memory, Bible memory in particular. We're just really bad at that kind of thing. Ancient cultures were much better at it. In fact, I have a friend who was born a Muslim in Sudan, which is a more would be a more ancient-rooted civilization in the East. And he had the entire Quran, before he was converted, he was a Muslim, he uh, had the entire Quran memorized by the age of six. That's a little embarrassing for us, isn't it? So I should expect you to beat a path straight to Donovan's Bible memory challenge right after the service. In Exodus 17, there's an interesting story. It's where uh, Moses and the Israelites, they defeat the Amalekites. And God tells Moses, write down this account of how you beat the Amalekites and recite it into the ear of Joshua. He was doing that because he knew that Joshua couldn't read or write, And there would come a time when this battle and defeat of the Amalekites would be very important that Joshua would want to remember as the new leader of Israel. So God had Moses repeat it to Joshua. Now, although Moses began the process of writing the records down, it was only during the time of King David that the first books of the Old Testament were actually completed. And keep in mind that although Moses is traditionally considered the author of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch, he couldn't have been the only author of them. And that's because those books contain the account of his death, and it's very hard to write after you're dead. So probably somebody else filled in for him the the, kind of the whole picture of what happened after he died and what God did with his body and that sort of thing. The other books of the Bible or the Old Testament were written by various authors, kings, prophets, as well as royal scribes, who were given the job, the task, of recording all of the uh, all of the accounts of the kings and important kingdom information. And in Esther, you'll find that these books were very boring because when King Nebuchadnezzar couldn't sleep, was King Nebuchadnezzar? I can't remember exactly. Xerxes? Xerxes. He got them to read from the books of the the Chronicles of the King. So they must have been just horrible. So by about 400 B.C., the Old Testament had been collected and organized into the completed works that we have today, and it was recognized as Scripture well before the time of Jesus. And around the time of 300 bc it was translated into greek and that greek translation is called the septuagint it was a very important translation of the bible as the hebrew language began to pass away and greek became became the predominant spoken language now it's very important to point out that no ancient culture that i've ever come across in all my studying this year was as meticulous in their preservation of their holy book as the hebrew people were i know why god called them to do this they were ridiculously meticulous. It, you know, you read some of the practices that they have. I, I feel it borders on neurotic. It's just crazy. It's like, oh my goodness. They would, they would count how many letters per line and then they would match the first letter to the last letter. They'd go to the middle of the, of the page and see if it, was, if it was the same one there. There would be a scribe writing down and a rabbi looking over his shoulder to make sure that he was doing it correctly. And they were allowed to make three mistakes and then if they made three mistakes, they had to crump up the whole scroll and start over again. It's meticulous. It would have driven me crazy. But the result is the document that we have in my hand, at least, this morning. And as Chris has said, the Old Testament that you have in your Bibles, although it's organized just a little bit differently than the Jewish Bible or the Jewish Old Testament was, this is precisely the same scriptures, the Old Testament, that Jesus had and that Paul studied. Isn't that incredible? So when you read the accounts of the Exodus of Joshua of Moses— Those are the same stories, word for word, that Jesus read as a child. Incredible to think about. However, for all the historically verifiable accounts of meticulous record keeping, there's two major challenges that are leveled at the Old Testament, and each of them can have a pretty devastating effect on the foundation of our faith. So we need to answer them fairly carefully. Two challenges are this. First, there's a lack of archaeological evidence that proves that the Old Testament really happened. And number two, there's similarities in ancient biblical accounts as well as pagan myths, so they must have been copied from each other. And we're going to look at both of these challenges this morning. Although the first one, lack of archaeological evidence, I won't spend much time on it, and it's really simple. You know why? It's wrong. There's tons of archaeological evidence for the Bible. Tons and tons and tons and tons. Now, Pardon me. Clearly, clearly, the further back we go in history, the less evidence we should expect. That just makes sense. It's buried deeper and deeper and deeper. And, and, and in, the, in, the, in the ancient Near East, a city would, would be, uh, you know, burnt or, or razed or besieged or whatever. It'd be toppled down, and they'd build another one right on top. So very often, you have to go down under the foundation of buildings to ancient buildings to more ancient buildings to more ancient buildings. So there is as we should expect, less and less evidence the farther back we go, and the Bible is an extremely ancient book, very, very ancient, so we should expect that there would be corresponding amounts of evidence. However, although our concepts of the world of the Old Testament have changed based on some discoveries, there has never, not in one case, ever been an archaeological discovery that has proved that the Bible is an error. Now, just let that sink in for a minute. There's lots of people out there who say that there is. They are not being honest with you. And I, uh, I was gonna. If you want to do a bit of reading on this, like I thought, I wanted to do a bit of reading on this. Two weeks ago, I ordered a big fat book, apparently, by a guy named K. A. Kitchen. I don't really know who he is, except that he's this old English scholar. He's old, super smart, and I learned some new vocabulary from him. It was fascinating. He has some very choice words for some of the skeptics out there who make you question the archaeological evidence. Words such as absolute bunkum, utter poppycock, and absolute trash. And you know what? Whenever a scholar can use, use those words, it makes me feel good. So, so if you want to read this, I mean, this book came, it was, it was very big. So I didn't get through it. I read the last two chapters of it. But it's, it goes through from the beginning of the Bible all the way through history, all of the archaeological evidence in one book. It is thrilling. <laughs> you should totally get it. <laughs> now, I should point out that one of the reasons that evidence is scarce could be that simply we're looking in the wrong place. Like, if you want to find some evidence for something that happened way back in the past, it would make sense that you've got to look in the right place. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Near East, like Egypt or Sinai Peninsula or Israel. It's a desert, and it's a wasteland, and it's like, it's just like desolate. So you have to know where you're looking. Now, for example, for decades, scholars have been baffled by the lack of evidence for Mount Sinai. They had some, somewhere around 17 or 18 different sites being suggested for Mount Sinai over the years. Now, the odd thing is that when you read the biblical description of Mount Sinai and you look at these other uh, thoughts of where they should be, they don't match up at all. In fact, the, 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 the picture that you have in the back of your Bible, it's this one very often, especially if you, this is the ESV one, I got it offline. They, you can see there that they put the route from Ramses or somewhere up there in Egypt down into the Sinai Peninsula there. You can see the purple arrow pointing at Mount Sinai. And there's a question mark. Thankfully, there's a question mark. But you'll notice that a lot of the routes they don't even go cross over the Red Sea because that would be supernatural and clearly can't happen. So they put it down there, and they go through some little marsh, and that's apparently the great exodus, and and then they arrive there. And you know what's interesting? There's no evidence for Mount Sinai there. There is a monastery, and it is the traditional site of Mount Sinai that was declared so by Catherine, who was Constantine's mother in AD 300. So she declared, this is Mount Sinai, and that's where we say it is. But let me ask you, I'm just gonna, we're going to work together here this morning. You're going to become scholars. okay? I just have a couple of trivia questions for you. Bible trivia. Moses. Moses was born in Egypt and he lived to be 40 years old and then he killed an Egyptian slave master, right? When Moses ran away to hide from Pharaoh, where, which country did he run to? Midian. Midian. Andreas knows. Midian. He ran to Midian. Now, does anybody know, now Moses became a shepherd, and his father was the priest of Midian, okay? His name was Jethro. He was the priest of Midian, the priest of a pagan god, okay? And he married his daughter, by the way. That's like someone from Steinbeck marrying someone from Niverville. So, <laughs> so, I married someone from Niverville, and I'm not from Steinbeck. Okay, now, where did Moses see the burning bush? Anybody know? It's at the mountain of God. Does anybody know where the mountain of God is? Midian. It's in Midian. If you read your Bible carefully, you'll see it there. It's in Exodus 3 verse 1. The mountain of God is in Midian. Now, do you know where God told Moses he would return with the Israelite people? To the mountain of God, which was in? Midian. Very good. So where do you think we should expect to find Mount Sinai? The mountain of God? (laughs) Midian. Midian like maybe across the Red Sea from where they actually think it is. Now, that's really interesting. Now, I'm going to tell you something. Some people have been looking in Midian for the real Mount Sinai. They've created some documentaries on it, and, and there's lots of controversy. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what archaeologists archeologi- you, you like or follow, because we all follow archaeologists. doesn't matter who you follow. There's always people who say they're, they're making it up, and it's a hoax, and it's, you know, questionable and all this. But look, In Midian, they have found a mountain, a candidate for the true Mount Sinai. It has a blackened top, blackened as if though fire had come down on the mountain. They found an an altar with Egyptian gods etched into the sides of it, hieroglyphics. Now, what are Egyptian hieroglyphics doing on an altar in the middle of Saudi Arabia? They found an altar with a corral attached to it. They found markers around the base of this mountain. In, in, uh, when Moses goes up on the mountain in Exodus, he's told by God to put boundary markers so that the people won't get too close. They have found distributed boundary markers around this strangely blackened mountain in Midian. So, all that is to say, it's not to say that there isn't controversy in this archaeology thing, but one thing is for sure. If you don't look in the right place, you actually won't find the evidence. And I'm convinced that some people out there don't really want to find the evidence. So in response to challenge one, we can say, along with K.A. Kitchen, Utter poppycock, complete cod swallop. There's scads and scads of archaeological evidence that supports the Old Testament if you look in the right places and you read the right books. Number two, and let's be honest, this is where things get interesting, right? What do we do with all the similarities in the ancient biblical accounts and pagan myths? Okay, what is the actual challenge here? The challenge posed here by skeptics is that because there are so many similar elements in ancient myths compared to the primeval stories of Genesis 1 to 11 that they must be copies of the other myths. Hebrews, the Jewish people were a latecomer on the landscape of civilization. Remember, Adam and Eve they actually weren't Hebrews. Hebrews, the, the Jewish people started with Abraham. Now this is very important to keep in mind. There were other civilizations that were organized before the Hebrews. And keep in mind that if it is true that the Old Testament was or that it is true, keep in mind, it is true. The Old Testament was written down later than many of the myths I'm about to describe for you. So if the written account is an indication of the age of a story, then the skeptics might have a valid point. They may have a valid point, but they won't have a valid point by the end. The first group of myths we're going to look at are creation myths. Starting around the middle of the night—oh, by the way, creation myths, because everybody wants to know where they came from, right? Like, there's, the, there's one question that everybody must answer for themselves, and that is, like, where does life come from? Today, modern, we, we try to answer it in a modern way through science, or some of us still re- rely on faith and religion to answer that question, which is better. But that there, there has been the same throughout the ages. Just because the ancient people were very ancient didn't mean they didn't wonder about where they came from. So they created myths to explain their origins. And starting around the middle of the 19th century, so relatively uh, recently, clay tablets were unearthed at the ancient site of Nineveh in modern-day Iraq that dated back to King Ashurbanipal of Assyria. The Assyrian era was approximately 669 to uh, 627 BC. Now this king's library contained like scads and scads of these clay uh, tablets Many of them were legal documents, they were records, and, the, and they were very important because they gave an idea to historians about the kind of life that people lived back in the Assyrian era. But among the tablets were also religious works. And among the, among the stories, several tablets, they had the story Enuma Elish, Enuma Elish which became known as the Babylonian Genesis. Now, this version found in the library of Ashurbanipal was on seven tablets and it dated back to the seventh century bc however the story itself is much much older than that and in fact they found tablets that are older than that now they think that it dates back as early as the 17th or 18th century bc because the the main character or the chief deity in this story is the god marduk and marduk raised prominence in babylonian rituals uh, about the 17th and 18th centuries. So they make, it makes sense that that's when the creation myth starring Marduk would have been started. Now, if that's the case, the story of Marduk in the Enuma Elish predates the birth of Moses by at least 200 years. Now, this is an example of how archaeology caused the Christian community to reassess their assumptions about the uniqueness of the Bible because the Enuma Elish corresponded to the biblical Genesis in four very significant ways. First of all, it had the same sequence of creation days. So it had the same one, two, three, and then sort of a one, two, three pattern again. It's six days, but there's actually a one, two, three, one, two, three pattern. They had darkness prior to the act of creation. There was a division of waters in the Enuma Elish. There was light existing before the sun, the moon, and the stars. And you know, that might not seem like a really big deal to us today, but previously, when a, when a Christian would hold their, their Bible in their hands, a Bible that talks about the beginning of time, the assumption was there that this must also then be the oldest book. It was at least the original story. But in the Enuma Elish was another story, and it apparently predated the writing of Genesis, and it contained some of the same details. So think about this. When it was discovered, like, what if Moses just knew about Enuma Elish and copied it? What if? So, as Christian scholars realized what was found, many Christians became nervous, And Enuma Elish was by no means the only creation myth that that emerged in archaeology similar to the biblical story. Stories of biblical, or stories of paradise gardens with rivers and these sort of magical trees that give you life, serpents and gods living in mountain homes, these kinds of stories are all over the ancient landscape. They even have a tree of life in ancient Aztec or uh, ancient Mayan. Uh, mythology. And you can see it in their artwork. Striking among some of these myths is the recurring symbol of chaos. In Enuma Elish, the chaos is a sea, and it's represented by the goddess Tiamat, who is eventually conquered by Marduk, who, um, who subsequently creates the world as we know it. In other words, before creating the world, Marduk has to subdue chaos. In most of the eight or so Egyptian myths, uh, the earth is formed also out of a chaotic primordial sea that needs to be calmed, and it's held up by the goddess Nun. In Genesis, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the chaotic waters, the watery depths. And that phrase there, formless and empty, is the Hebrew phrase, tohuabohu. That's the only Hebrew phrase I remember from Bible school, tohu abohu. And carries the connotation of emptiness, confusion, and chaos. You see, that image there of chaos and the watery depths, the primordial sea, as the initial condition of the universe, is found in virtually every ancient creation myth. However, the creation myth similarities are nowhere near as compelling as the flood myths that extend around the globe. There are literally dozens and dozens of flood stories around the world that agree more or less with the biblical account in Genesis 6 and onward. In fact, one website suggested that there were 500. And I don't know if there are 500, but there are many. This uh, this chart that I have will show you. The story of the Bible is on the side here. It's, uh, the story is, of course, you are familiar with it. It's Noah. The whole world is in living in sin, man in transgression. There is a divine destruction. There's a favored family. There's an ark provided. There's destruction by water. Humans are saved. Animals are saved. Universal destruction. Landing on a mountain. Birds sent out. Survivors worship and divine sa- favor on the saved. And then you can see along the top all the myths. There are, I don't know, a dozen or so up there. And there's two uh, Babylonian Assyrian ones. Persian, Syrian, Asia, minor, Greece. They all have their own creation myth ancient creation myth, and wherever you see a green block, that is where the story agrees almost completely with the biblical account. And wherever you see a black-red box, that means that it agrees partially with the biblical account. So you can see the first story there, the first myth from Assyria babylon that one agrees almost completely with Genesis 6. That's very interesting. There's a lot of corresponding similarities the two of the myths that strike the closest to the Genesis story are the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is older, and then Atrahasis. Atrahasis, like Enuma Elish, is written in the language called Akkadian. It was the common language of ancient Babylon. It is about a main character, Atrahasis, for whom the poem is written, and he has to escape the wrath of the god Inil. Inil wants to destroy all the people of the earth because they become too noisy and they're keeping the gods awake. If you're a parent you understand flood the basement right <laughs> to destroy the children too loud keeping me awake my mama's here you know that's more accurate than you would know now atrahasis though helped by the water god EA builds a boat for himself and his family takes animals along with him and after the deluge subsides comes to rest on a mountain And sends out birds to see if the land is ready for reentry. Sounds familiar. And like Enuma Elish, both of these legends were recorded at least several hundred years before Moses sat down to write the Genesis flood account. And that isn't to mention the myriad of other myths that are out there that are similar. For example, there are Nephilim myths. The Nephilim were these uh, the sons of God, powerful angelic beings that came down to earth and slept with women, impregnated them, and created a race of giants. That's the, that was the reason for the flood in the first race. Many, many ancient myths talk about the gods coming down and having demigod children like Hercules or Perseus in Greek mythology. There are similarities in how the pagan world described or drew their idea of what the throne room looked like of their god. In fact, if you were to compare some Egyptian and Canaanite and, and different artwork of of their idea of what the throne room looked like in the cosmic temple of their God. You know what you would find? When you read Ezekiel's description of God's throne coming down from heaven, he's virtually describing that artwork. Lots of similarities. There's similarities in the ancient descriptions of the anti-life. There's stories of suffering characters like Job. There's even Ten Commandment law documents in the pagan cultures and in the Bible. And that isn't to mention the stories of the sun gods, There's many, many myths about sun gods, some who have been compared to Jesus. So if the skeptical and liberal scholars are correct, then what is happening is very simple. The book you hold in your hands is nothing more than a collection of ancient myths common across the entire ancient landscape. It is not unique, and it is certainly not inspired. And as Chris said, if this book isn't reliable through and through, we are building our faith on a very shifty foundation. So what is actually going on here? First of all, let me make some critical observations. First of all, this. Simply because you have a written account, simply because a story is written down before another story does not mean that the that the second story is invented, borrowed, or older. It is at least probable to suggest that the first original story was the Hebrew story, the version of the Hebrew creation story, and that it was passed down orally, 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 and at the Tower of Babel, it got spread out among the different religions, and it changed a little bit, but there was still a common origin, that's very possible. It's possible that just the, simply because the Canaanites wrote down their version first doesn't make the Israelite one a copy. That's at least probable, but it's fairly hard to prove. The second thing I need to say is this the proper context of the Bible is the ancient Near East, and that includes all of its language and mythology and imagery. Now, this is critical to understand for a couple of reasons. Well, first of all, it answers the skeptics, but second of all, it makes the Bible come alive. I have never enjoyed reading the Old Testament as much as I did this year because I began to understand some of the old images that are written down there. I'm going to give you an example. For example, how many of you know that before God created the world, he defeated a sea monster called Leviathan? It's true. It's in your Bible. You've read it before. Before God created the world, he defeated the sea monster Leviathan. I'll show you the passage. In Psalm 74, verse 12. It says, God is my king from ancient times, performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert because they were hungry and they were in the desert. You opened up the springs and streams. You dried up ever-flowing rivers. The day is yours, also the night. You established the moon and the sun. You set the boundaries of the earth. You made the sun summer and winter. Now, we know this is talking about creation because of all the following language. You divided the sea. You opened up springs. The day is yours. The night also. You established the moon and night. on and on and on. You, you know that Genesis is not the only creation text in your Bible, right? Job actually has far more creation material than Genesis does. And much of the Psalms refers back to what they, how they believe that God created the world. And this is one of those things. Now, I have a question for you. Did God actually defeat Leviathan when he created the universe? No. The answer is no. He did not. And you know what? If you were an ancient person reading this psalm, you would have known that God did not actually defeat Leviathan before he created the world. And you know how you would have known that? Because you were familiar with pagan myths. And there was a myth that came from Ugarit, Uh, and it's that's in Canaan, and it was very famous. Ugarit was the neighbor of Israel to the north in modern day Syria. And it's a very important site because a lot of the Ugaritic language and Hebrew, there's a lot of overlap. So when they understood one, they were able to understand the other. For example, in this myth, Baal, you recognize Baal from the Bible, Baal becomes the king of the gods after defeating Yam, Y-A-M-M. Now, Yam was the Canaanite as well as the Hebrew word for sea. Yam was chaotic and violent force that was depicted as a sea monster in this myth. It was very similar to the Enuma Elish as well, where the goddess Tiamat is is defeated and the chaotic seas are calmed. In fact, Tiamat is depicted in mythology as a sea monster. So what's going on here? These myths were very important to the pagan, uh, or to the ancient cultures, because they established certain gods as the chief deity of the people. And all the people of the ancient world were familiar with the chief deities. It's interesting that throughout much of the Bible, Yahweh's chief deity is the Canaanite god Baal. And as a result, you find many of the Old Testament writers comparing Yahweh to Baal or elements in Baal mythology as a way of kind of sticking it to him and his followers. So what Psalm 74 is essentially saying is this. Hey, you pagan neighbors to the north, you think that Baal was the one who calmed the chaotic seas? Not a chance. It was Yahweh, so take that. That's what Psalm 74 is saying. You guys attribute the the defeat of the chaotic sea and Leviathan to Baal? Are you kidding me? It was Yahweh. Get it right. That's what they're doing and do you know that david oh actually interesting too baal was thought to ride on the clouds he was thought to be a god that rode on the clouds of thunder he held lightning in his hand like zeus this is why the psalmist wrote and in many other places my soul praise yahweh my god my lord you are very great you are clothed with majesty and splendor he wraps himself in light as if it were a robe spreading the out the sky like a canopy laying the beams of his palace of the waters this is all ancient uh, ancient pictures and then he says, he's making the clouds his chariot. Take that, Baal. Our God is the one who rides the clouds. David does exactly the same thing in Psalm 68, in Samuel 2, uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel 22, and even Moses wrote this way in Deuteronomy 30, uh, 33. Even Isaiah wrote this way, because Egypt, they had their own set of cloud gods, an oracle against Egypt. Look, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. Egypt's idols tremble before him and Egypt's heart will melt with it. You guys, it is absolutely no mistake that when they describe the Ancient of Days coming on the clouds like he will one day, they were referring to something in in ancient imagery there. It's very important. Now, just because it's an ancient image doesn't mean it's not true. Doesn't mean that at all. And I believe that when they describe Jesus coming on the clouds as the Ancient of Days at the end, that is exactly what is going to happen. But they were also defeating the god Baal and knocking him off his cloud chariot at the same time. One of the reasons that there are so many similarities in the Bible compared to pagan myths is that the biblical authors were trying to use these common myths to intentionally draw attention to Yahweh. He was the true God of creation. He's the true God behind the flood. He's the true God who rides the clouds and makes the rain. But you know what? There's a lot more going on here than just you know a a schoolyard, my daddy's bigger than your daddy kind of competition. It's not just a political ploy. It's not a, a smear campaign. These stories, these psalms became the lifeblood to the Israelites because, and now you have to think like an ancient, Baal wasn't an abstract idea to them. Baal was a significant threat. Now, anybody who has dabbled in witchcraft or the occult will tell you that there's real power there. Anybody. Who genuinely dabbled in it, they will say there is real power there. You know, Baal wasn't just a lump of carved stone like some fat garden Buddha that you have out out in the front yard. He was, there was a real demonic entity behind the God they worshipped. You think about this for a second. The kind of rituals and awful, hideous things that went on in their temples, sacrificing children to gods like this, you don't think there was a return for that kind of hideous behavior? No one would do it otherwise. The statue, then, of Baal was a representation of a very real demonic, territorial spirit that dated back to the stories of the Nephilim and the Tower of Babel. Baal was a territorial spirit similar to the prince of Persia, who detains Gabriel in Daniel 10. I think you know this story. It's a great story. Daniel has had all these visions that are very scary, and so he decides to get the revelation. He's going to fast and pray until he understands. It takes 21 days for Gabriel to appear to Daniel, and this is what he says. Gabriel the archangel. Gabriel the mighty angel. This is such a great story. He says, Don't be afraid, Daniel. From, for, from the first day that you purposed to understand, to humble yourself before God, your prayers were heard. I have come because of your prayers, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia uh, opposed me for 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me after I had been with the, there with the kings of Persia. Now, was this a real king of Persia? Was Gabriel coming down and going into the palace, and now there's an army of men opposing him? Of course not. It's what Paul talks about in Ephesians. It's the authorities in the high places. He was a demonic spirit. And think about it. Gabriel was a big dude. And he was fighting an evil evil angel. It's like, you know, me fighting Ray Yoder on the parking lot. And then uh, I can't win for 21 days and Stephan has to come in and help me. You know, it's kind of like that. (laughs) This is a great battle scene. It's a great battle scene. But the point is this. There was actually an authority, a demonic spiritual authority over Persia. There was. And I want to suggest that Baal was the name of a similar authority over the the territory of Canaan. So when the psalmists, the prophets, and the historical authors of the Old Testament— use language that's reserved for God, such as Baal, they were doing several things. Now pay attention. Yes, they were using common ancient imagery to help explain who Yahweh is. Yes, they were correcting the false pagan notions for both the pagan nations and the Hebrew people of who really created the world, who really sent the flood, who really produces the harvest, who really governs the seasons and life, and so on. But... They were also exalting Yahweh over the demonic deities of the pagan nations, they, the very real and terrifying demonic entities. These texts were literally spiritual warfare reassuring the Israelites of who was really in charge and who was really worthy of our worship. And now I want to ask you something. How is that any different than today? You know, the reason God inspired the writers of the Old Testament to write these corrective accounts was because the pagan myths were highly deceptive in nature. They diverted attention away from Yahweh and made the Israelites question the word of the Lord. You know, many, many people have lost their faith in the confusion that was raised by the ancient discovery or the discovery of these ancient myths. Many people. Libraries are filled with books of people who lost their faith over stuff like this. Not to mention all the people who've lost their faith because of modern-day myths. You know what's going on in these myths, both modern and ancient? Satan is resurrecting the original lie. Did God really say? One of the, chiefs, one of the chief weapons of the devil is to cause us to doubt the words that Jesus has spoken Consider this. Jesus created the world with the power of his word. Incredible. So what does the enemy do? He throws the whole world into confusion about what the actual origin of the universe is. Did God really say that he created it? But it's much more personal than that. You know, you go for personal ministry, pray with someone in your cell, and God whispers in your ear, you are forgiven, child. But as you lay in your bed at night, the sins of your past replay past your eyes like TV and the devil whispers, did God really say you're forgiven? Satan even tried this nonsense with Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus had been baptized when a voice from heaven declared, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And the first words out of the mouth of the devil are, if you are the son of God. Did God really call you his son, Jesus? I believe that that lie, did God really say, is the foundation of modern-day deception within the church. I don't even mean out there. I mean within the walls of the church. Did God really say? Remember the, Paul's, uh, remember the words of Paul to Timothy. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. And in one of my favorite passages, Jesus said this, false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. My favorite verse. You know why? Because I am one of the elect. So when the devil wields that lie against me, did God really say, I can see it as deception because I'm one of the elect. And so are many of you if you've made the Lord the leader of your life. What is the quality of a true disciple, of the elect, of whom it's not even possible to deceive? You know what? John tells us that a true disciple is the one who stays in God's word. There's a reason that Chris Pewhatch taught us two weeks ago that the first weapon in the armor of God is the belt of truth. It's a person who continues with that truth, who finishes the race, who finds freedom. As Stefan preached last week, John 8 says this We all know this verse. It says, You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But before it says you will know the truth, it tells you how to know the truth. If you continue in my word, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's not this abstract, suddenly you know something is true, and now you're set free. No, no, no. If you continue with Jesus, believe what he says, that means that you're really his disciple. And if you're really his disciple, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And what does this have to do with Old Testament and ancient myths? Well, it has a lot to do with it. Not every so-called scholar that you can look up online is interested in the truth. And the challenges to the uniqueness of the Old Testament are extremely deceptive in nature. To say that there's no archaeological evidence when there clearly is, that's deceptive. And these issues are just as spiritual as they are today as they were for the ancient Israelites because they divert our attention away from Yahweh. It can literally take one book to throw someone completely off their faith. It almost did for me. Don't let one book throw you off your faith. And just to wrap up and put this whole thing to to a rest, it is true that there are numerous superficial similarities between ancient myths and the Old Testament. But I want you to know that the differences are extremely significant, and to focus only on similarities is to be deceptive. So, for example, in Atrahasis, while the earth is flooded to get rid of these annoying human beings, the God of the Bible is not a capricious God who just wants to destroy a noisy population. He's a God of mercy and justice, who must be holy and set apart from his creation. Totally different. They're completely different in regard to the quality and the character of Yahweh compared to the gods in these myths. But isn't that typical of deception? It's a measure of truth mixed with the concoction of lies to throw you off. It doesn't matter whether the deception is ancient in nature, whether it is the prince of Persia opposing the revelation of a vision, or modern materialism, that sets itself up against our creator God. The end goal is always the same, to destroy, however slowly and meticulously, the faith that saves us. So stay close to the word, the true genuine word, so that you can tell the counterfeit from the authentic. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful that you saw it fit not only to speak into our hearts but to write it down and I'm so grateful that you not only wrote it down for us but that you speak into our hearts. Jesus, your words are true. Through and through, they're true. Your book is reliable. We can know so much about who you are through it. Jesus, I pray that we would fall in love with the Old Testament and all the mystery and questions surrounding it just like there's mystery and questions surrounding you. Jesus, I pray that today, as we enter into this last song of worship, that we would do so with a sense of profound gratitude and wonder at your holiness. And Jesus, I pray that you would welcome our song as praise. Amen.